Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Journal of Asian American Studies. I am your host, Chris Patterson, speaking to you from the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territories of the Musqueam people on the University of British Columbia campus. This interview is the last of a four-part series featuring winners and honorable mentions of the 2021 Book Awards for the Association of Asian American Studies, or AAAS. Since 1987, the Book Awards at the annual Asian American Studies Association Conference have given valuable attention onto the works in Asian American studies that have been leading the field. Our last three episodes focused on the book awards in social sciences, literary studies, poetry, and fiction. This episode will focus on the winner of the award in humanities and cultural studies in media, performance, and visual studies. Past winners in these categories include Bernadette Gonzalez's Securing Paradise, Tourism, and Militarism in Hawaii and the Philippines, Mimi Wen's The Gift of Freedom, War, Debt, and Other Refugee Passages, Lisa Nakamura's Digitizing Race, Visual Cultures on the Internet, and Jasbir Poor's Terrorist Assemblages, Homonationalism in Queer Times, among many others. This year, the winning book is Candice Chu's The Difference Aesthetics Makes on the Humanities After Man, a book that challenges our divisions of aesthetics and politics while showing how liberal humanism has persisted within the ways we organize in institutions, the ways we teach, and the ways that we think of ourselves. To begin the interview, I will read from the rationale written by the award committee. As we will discuss racial, gendered, and sexual violence, please remain mindful of where our discussions are going and take care. To my mind, one of the things that the book is trying to encourage 
um, and that I found my way to through writing it, I think, is the collective and is the collegial and um, how it is that any given object has so many people who are responsible for it. I'm here with Kenneth Chu, who is a professor of English, American Studies, and Critical Social Psychology at the CUNY Graduate Center. She is currently working on The Disinherited Teacher, a collection of essays on pedagogies and praxis, and When Slash Where Slash How Asia, a project on Asian racialization in the contemporary era. Her new award-winning book is The Difference Aesthetics Makes, On the Humanities After Man, a book that, as the award committee wrote, quote, stages a capacious epistemological intervention with huge implications for Asian American studies, as well as a host of fields with which it engages, including performance studies, literary studies, critical race theory, queer theory, and philosophy. The difference aesthetics makes stands out because it offers a new direction in the field that decenters the Asian American subject and moves us toward Asian racialization as the task of Asian American critique. The difference aesthetics makes calls for a shift in thinking, encouraging the scholar within and without Asian American studies to research and teach in a way that evacuates attempts to, quote, show our humanity and invest in recognition politics. The theoretical framework True offers, a liberal humanism, and the challenge she poses to Asian American studies is inspiring and exciting, as it reminds us of foundational commitments of the field to, quote, ameliorate violence and suffering advanced by racial capitalism and colonialism. The project stages a discussion of relationality and entanglement that is particularly powerful for the ways it links to discussions within indigenous and queer studies, continuing the work to draw Asian American studies into other realms of minoritarian knowledge production. Choose the difference aesthetics makes, continues and expands slash extends Lisa Lowe's influential and foundational book, Immigrant Acts, Laura Kong's compositional subjects, and the many works that have been published since, works that refuse to settle and neatly discipline what Asian American studies might inhabit intellectually and pedagogically. And now to the interview. Hi, Candice. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for coming and being so willing to talk about your book, The Difference Aesthetics Makes. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you. So I'm very curious how your reaction, what your reaction was like to winning the uh, AAAS Book Award in Cultural Studies, considering that um, your book is somewhat about the discipline of Asian American studies. Um, I think in your postscript, you say like it is and is not an Asian American studies book. Yeah. Um, and similarly, you it's, it is and it is not a countercultural studies text. So can you talk a bit about um, what this award it means and, and how you kind of see your book situated within or not situated in those fields? Sure, absolutely. Um, I have to say, when I when I got the email, I opened it and I was genuinely startled. And so I closed it immediately because I thought this can't be right. I must have I must have read it wrong. Um, I thought this this was a mistake. And, you know, there is no reason that I that this book should have gotten it because I, I think of it as such a weird little object that doesn't really um, uh, fit in, in any sort of way um, with any particular field or any particular association. Um, and then I read it again and I read the citation that the awards committee wrote and I was really just uh, deeply grateful um, and really delighted and not 
so much because of the award, perhaps, but um, I think because of the association, you know, AAAS holds space for so many of us. And it was the first association conference that I went to as a grad student in the early 90s. And it is the one that I remember, um, and I think still kind of functions this way. It's like the place that you go and you can see other people doing the sorts of work and having the same kinds of obsessions that you do. Where from, you know, most of us working at certainly across the, um, the U.S. and Canada, I think where you are, um, we're really the only ones in our institutions doing this sort of work. Um, so there's just like this, uh, I have this immense sense of gratitude that um, this association that I, I cherish so much actually would want to acknowledge anything that I've done. Um, and then I, I have a lot of um, kind of practical gratitude, which is about, I'm so aware of the labor that it takes to run an association, um, but also to do things like serve on, on book awards and uh, book award committees. And um, most of that, I think all of that labor is volunteer, right? Nobody's getting compensated for it. And we all do it because um, it is really an act of collegiality and commitment to a field and to project, a collective project and mutuality. And, um, and those are the things that I think, you know, those are the really meaningful things, the things that we do well. And we do well as an association, we do well as a field. And um, I, I'm, I'm uh, really mindful of all of the time and effort that it takes for people to do this sort of work. So, so all of that, I'm really grateful. As for, in, in terms of it, it being the, um, the book award in cultural studies, um, I, I, you know, it, it both does and doesn't make sense to me. I, I mean, insofar as I'm really glad that it is taken um, as something that, that registers uh, as a contribution to the kinds of conversations and debates that cultural studies as a field stands for, right? So always engaging the political, um, always thinking about social formation, always thinking about the work that we do in the academy as embedded in the greater social and historical field. Um, and that for me, you know, I wrote a book that was emphasizing the language of aesthetics, that it's, there's not a necessarily a correlation to um, these other domains or these other registers of critical work. So, um, I, you know, I'm, you, you never know when, when something goes out, when you, when you write something and you put it out into the world, how it will be received. And so, so I'm, I'm just pleased and pleased. Well, I do want to talk about that uh, cultural turn, cultural the culture wars that you talk about in the book. Yeah. Um, but first, I do want to Think about, uh, as you mentioned, the impact of um, of the association and also of Asian American studies as a field on your own work. Um, mm. By going back to your first book in 2003, <laughs> which is Imagine Otherwise, um, which made quite big. I, I read it for the first time in 2008 or 2009, and it still felt so uh, freshing and new as a grad student at that time. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm always stunned, like, oh, that got published in 2003. My goodness, because yeah. it felt so of it. Um, it still feels quite relevant to this day. Uh, but it, it made quite big waves. And now it's seen as a kind of must read book in the field. Um, and in that book, you argue that the term Asian American can be reframed, uh, not by its subjects or objects, but by its critique, and its own history as a constructed identity. And you talk about the some of the afterlife of this book at the end of your new book in the postscript. Yeah. Um, but can you talk a bit about that? Like, what? How has its afterlife been, um, and how has it pushed you to write this book? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. So I went to grad school in the early 1990s, 
at the same institution that you did, it turns out, University of Washington. And I think if you were in graduate school in the early 1990s and you were had any kind of interest in ethnic literary studies and um, race theory and critical race studies, um, it was impossible not to take seriously the critique of identity and the critique of identity both as a politics but also as a critical paradigm. Um, and if you if you took that to heart, as I did, you know, I, I really believed the critique of identity, that, that there were limitations to it as a kind of organizing principle, but also a critical paradigm that we really needed to be theorizing beyond, right? Theorizing in um, other uh, modes and alternative ways of thinking and approaching our work. Um, you know, and I, I mean, taking to heart such work like uh, Lisa Lowe's um, uh, formative essay, The Heterogeneity, Hybridity, and Multiplicity. It's later, you know, became a part, a chapter in Immigrant Acts, but it, it came out earlier as a separate, a standalone essay. Um, we could also think about um, Laura Kang's book, right, Compositional Subjects, which won this award um, in the early uh, 2000s when it came out, or Karen Chimakawa's National Objection. I mean, we were all trying to figure out how to navigate um, post-identity critique, right? That is to say, like, what are we going to do in in light of the critique of identity? Um, and I think, so that was part of it, but the other side of it was that uh, while there was this critique of identity, there was also a very strong sense of the coherence of Asian American as a rubric, right? As a political and social subject category. Um, so trying to contend simultaneously with its seeming coherence and its fundamental instability, right? Um, and that's really where that book um, came out of. You know, uh, the, the Imagine Otherwise was really something that is me trying to figure out how to make use of that term, of this term, Asian American. Um, and in the context of doing things like engaging the AAAS, right, of going places where uh, there was a sense that there is a conversation in common around the study of what Asian American means and doesn't mean, how it comes to mean something, how it comes to seem knowable. So for me, um, I was really trying to think about what the field or how we might think about Asian American studies in terms of its epistemological um, impact rather than, or in addition to thinking about it as a political and social project, right? So it isn't that the politics and, and um, the kind of other dimensions of it, right, are separable from its epistemological domain. So the, the um, modes of knowing and the valuation and the kinds of truths that we are trying to produce vis-a-vis -vis Asian American studies or Asian Americanist critique um, are inseparable from the address of racial formation, from the address of racial capitalism and so on. Um, but they're not... But, but we cannot talk about them in terms of identity. So we have to find another language to, to think through that. And that for me was this kind of, you know, uh, really trying to separate out uh, a sense of a, a critical approach versus something that, that seemed to be causally related to some, you know, kind of congealed subject called the Asian American. And, you know, for better or worse, I mean, I think that that, uh, it was it was for me helpful in thinking through um, a, as a process of writing that book. And I would say that its reception is an indication that other people were also grappling with those questions. Right. So that is to say, when we see texts emerge that become, you know, that get 
awards or that become um, central reading, you know, readings in common. I, I, I tend to think of them in the way that Raymond Williams thinks about keywords, right? Like the conditions of emergence, you know, they tell us something, those moments tell us something more about the conditions of emergence than they do necessarily about the qualities of the object, themse- object itself. So I would say that that book's reception and the fact that it feels still current and contemporary to us is in some ways because racial essentialism is still there, right? And so long as racial essentialism is still present, we are still going to have to be working to derive and employ methods that don't trap us into those modes, right? Don't trap us into essentialist identity categories. And, you know, I I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that... um, I don't know that it's a must-read book, honestly. I'm I'm really glad that people find it useful, but I'm not sure I'm not sure that there aren't other works that could also do that. Well, maybe your new book will be the next <laughs> must-read book. <laughs> I don't know about that. I will say, actually, I mean, I'll take this opportunity to say, imagine otherwise, in a funny way, oftentimes the thing that I hear most quoted is the title, Imagine Otherwise. It's a great title. It's a phrase that I took from Avery Gordon's Ghostly Matters, um, which is a, a phenomenally good book, you know, and um, I I often find myself having to correct people to say that's actually not my phrase, it's actually Avery Gordon's. Um, and the, there used to be a fuller discussion of ghostly matters in um, Imagine Otherwise itself, but it got edited out at some moment, you know, in whatever drafting. Um, but I think, you know, the, the whole point that Um, Gordon was trying to make. And the one that I was trying to pick up on was the idea that we are working to not only imagine otherwise, but actually to imagine otherness itself otherwise, right? To imagine that as a fundamental, fundamentally different um, thing than than it's been given to us as. And, you know, it's it's kind of refusing that category of the minority. It's refusing the category of the abject other um, and saying that we can play in that and, uh, you know, kind mm-hmm. of seeing how the literature and the arts that come to us actually do that work for us. Well, this leads us to your new book. Um, and forgive me for this incredibly uh, cheesy transition, <laughs> uh, but perhaps one way of imagining otherness otherwise is through the difference that aesthetics yeah. makes there you go yeah but it does feel like there's a there is a continuation of some of these ideas focusing more on the humanities right writ large um, than asian american subjectivity so much um, yeah. but is the, is the difference oh my god i'm gonna say it again but is the difference <laughs> aesthetic makes one way of imagining otherness otherwise i think so i mean i think it is for me um and thank you for that, that pivot i think um you know there was at some point i was giving some kind of a book talk on the differences on imagine otherwise and someone asked you know because i use the term subjectless in, in that book and i said I said, well, if Asian American studies is subjectless, what are we left with? You know, is it just kind of a void? And and I found that a really good question, right? Um, and it's a question that Imagine Otherwise absolutely did not, um, I, I don't think I had even considered it as part of the domain or part of the horizon of that project. Um, it isn't that the difference is that it's makes. I didn't, I didn't set out to produce a response to it, but I do think that in a way, um, that is what has happened. You know, it's uh, over 15, 20 years of writing, um, uh, reading and writing um, beyond the research for Imagine Otherwise. I think, I, 
sometimes I, I sometimes talk with my students. You know, I, I work in a in a institution now that we only have graduate students. We only have doctoral students. So um, they are both my students and also my colleagues, right? Um, and I think uh, part of the conversation that we have regularly is about how a book or an article or a talk or um, a class or whatever that thing is, um, is only ever a particular manifestation of a much bigger project, right? And thinking of them in that way, um, for me and you know hopefully for for um, my students and my colleagues it can it it alleviates the sense that everything has to be perfect because you can't ever say everything that you need to yeah um i think of these two monographs in this way and so in a in the kind of most abbreviated form i think of the first book um i think i was responding to what was then and maybe is still a ubiquitous question is what is asian american literature um by focusing on the asian american side right of that what is asian american literature and i think in this later book i was trying to figure out the later term what is the literature of asian american literature um and that that question generally keys into what I just, I've never been able to shake off, which is my interest in um, the kind of meta question, right? The questions that ask us to reflect on what it is that we're doing when we claim to be Asian Americanists, when we claim to be Americanists, literary scholars, and so on, um, how we come to our objects of inquiry, how we come to the approaches, etc. cetera. Um, so for me, what is literature is a question that connects me to aesthetics um, and to the humanities, and partly because I've spent my professional life in English departments. So I came through an English department at the University of Washington, um, during a time when a lot of our training was in cultural studies. So the people I worked with there were really cultural studies practitioners, um, but also working in the ethnic studies department, um, uh, you know, being trained by Sean Wong and Linda Revilla. Um, and my first teaching was in ethnic studies and Asian American studies. Um, so trying to grapple with what it meant to be in an English department and feeling like a failed English professor, right? I didn't really, I don't have that kind of, uh, the canonical English um, has never been uh, what the the stuff that makes me really you know excited or happy. I mean, some of it does, but but as a as a whole, it hasn't. Um, and somebody who you know says that I'm I'm um, attached to interdisciplinarity and interdisciplinary projects, but I really love literature. I really like books. I like I like prose, and I like uh, writing in a kind of flat-footed, um, mundane in in the most common sense of that. Um, so. I wanted to understand what it was that I was doing in an English department as an Asian Americanist. And that's really where this project came from. It is also a project that is the post-tenure project, right? So I felt like I could read the things that I didn't have a chance to or really was turned fairly decidedly away from, you know, aesthetics, philosophy, um, uh, which I had understood through my graduate studies to be the domain of the politically conservative, right? Cultural studies was where the politically progressive went and aesthetics was really um, uh, the people who didn't want to have anything to do with race or gender or sexuality um, and certainly couldn't recognize Asian American literature as a proper field of literary studies. Um, so that's a lot of the, the sorts of immediate um, prompts that brought me to the project. Um, and then there's this kind of, you know, in the what, like 15 years that, you know, that unfolded between my starting to think about these questions and when it actually came out, um, you know, that was the time when the critique of the humanities and the crisis of the humanities were simultaneously unfolding everywhere. Um, 
and the critique of liberalism and multiculturalism and diversity, you know, through post-colonial studies and decolonial studies. Um, in in Asian American studies, it was the Pacific Islander critique, right, um, of kind of American formations or nationalist formations that weren't sufficiently attentive to empire and weren't sufficiently attentive to the um, impact of, of the colonial um, and settler colonialism in particular. Um, and at the same time, recognizing that by that time, many of us had actually, we'd been tenured in our institutions, you know, not a lot. I mean, many of us is not by any means um, a dramatic, you know, dramatic number, but but we had gotten to um, have a space in an institutional location. Um, and because of a lot of work and a lot of effort by a lot of people in and outside of the academy. So for me in kind of what was sort of my mid-career thought well i could spend the next 20 years hand-wringing i could leave the academy altogether or i could actually try to figure out whether there is something to be done with where we are to make use of the location of where we are um and to to kind of inhabit an english department in a different way um, and see what was possible and that's a lot of you know what this book is is actually trying to it's sort of a book book version of the kind of conversations that i often have um that are about you know how do we actually do our work within these spaces that really don't want us to be here um and that or and not not as individuals but rather kind of as a field or as a a challenge to the canonical modes that the university has been organized, uh, by which the university has been organized, and certainly through the humanities. So the more that I read, the more I just came to understand that the English English discipline, the discipline of English, but also the humanities writ large, um, there, you know, we have been so important to the buttressing of colonial modernity, right? The buttressing of liberalism um, that how could we not take up our positions to try to do something else, right? Um, it seemed it seemed no longer an option, it seemed no longer viable to to not try to do something else, um, rather than rather than you know continuing to just be unhappy <laughs> about all, you know all of the different things that were happening. Um, and in the practical sense, and this is something that I wrote in the book too. Um, I kept hearing all of the discourse around, you know, not just we must defend the humanities, but also um, we must defend the humanities because they are so important to sort of the noble causes of civilization, right? That they are, that we will, civilization will collapse without the humanities. And, you know, when you come from uh, kind of an epistemological and political position where you are always critiquing versions of civilization, right? Um, it's very difficult to stand in defense of them. But you also can't, I, I couldn't um, help but notice also that they were really ineffective arguments. Funding for public education was not coming back as a recourse of that. Um, universities weren't suddenly saying, oh, that's right, this is really important. These noble pursuits are really important. Let us put more money or let us put more resources into the humanities. Um, in fact, it was still kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the depth of defunding um, has been enormous, at least in the U.S. context. And it doesn't make sense to me to continue to try to argue something that isn't working. So there again, I just wanted to see, you know, is there something else that we could do? And um, that's it. That, that was all I was trying to figure out in this book. 
Well, well, that's something else um, does come through pretty strongly, right, in the in the introduction. Um, and you do begin the book discussing this defense of the humanities. And I recall in your um, when you were president of the American Studies Association, uh, your um, main speech that's like still on YouTube, everyone can still go watch it, <laughs> is like <laughs> is about this, right? Um, the, yeah. the the desire to just defend the humanities, uh, but more through the um, um, the f- the idea of, of academic freedom, right? right. Um, but here you turn that argument more towards what you call uh, illiberal humanism yeah. that can recognize how the humanities has and uh, continues to contribute to the re- reproduction of the subjugation um, and to the definitions of the human. So can you yeah. um, talk a bit about this argument? Because as you say also in the introduction, it's different than like a new materialist argument that would try mm-hmm. to blur the boundaries of the human with animal uh, cyborg and so on, um, and objects um, that you still want to hold on to, like the human of the humanism, I guess, but to yeah. sh- also show something different. So, like, can you explain this a bit? Sure. I mean, I so I guess maybe one place to start is I'm I'm really uncomfortable with the term illiberal. I know I use it. Um, I probably should have marked more specifically that I am uncomfortable with it, and it's not because I. I want to disavow it or anything. I'm just not sure that it does the work that I, I want it to do, um, which is to say, all right, following Sylvia Winter's kind of robust work, you know, amazing kind of capacious work that really makes it so clear how narrow the particular genre of human, the particular genre of man is that we have, that has been imposed on us through colonial, through the systems that have um, established colonial modernity as the historical dominant, right? Um, when, you, when you recognize that, when you recognize the kind of parochialism of that, then that the kind of an amazing horizon opens up to recognize that all of these things that we have been um, reading and thinking and feeling and sensing um, through the literature and the art that comes to us not by those who um, seemingly exemplify the ideal of the uh, enlightened subject, the liberal subject, right? But actually those who are cast aside precisely so that ideal can emerge. Um, for me, what happened was I could start to understand how those were not arguments for humanization, but rather arguments that we recognize the limitations of the particular version of the human that has been given to us, right? And that those limitations are not merely, uh, or not only to be understood as uh, as a consequence of exclusion, right? It's not simply that if we if we could make that capacious enough to include everybody, um, then it would be fine, right? It's not an assimilationist argument, but rather that that in the conceptualization of that human itself, it requires the subjugation of others, right? There is no way for that human not to require that kind of um, uh, dehumanization of others, yeah? Um, but, but of course, you know, people who have been dehumanized by that system are fully robust and wonderfully alive and amazingly smart beings in the world, right? And so if we can tap into the kinds of humanisms that come out of those, uh, that rendering, right? That rendering that does not, um, that does not depend on the subjugated exclusion of others in order for the stabilization of the particular idealized form of the human. Um, what an amazing difference that might make, right? What an amazing difference that it has already made. 
So I'm using those two tenses in part because one of the things that I want to, to do was to think a little about the temporalities that we use um, when we're talking about politically engaged work. And it isn't that, you know, and, and here I'm really informed by the work of people like Jose Munoz and um, uh, Gayatri Gopinath and Martin Menelinson and Rod Ferguson and Siobhan Somerville, you know, a lot of people are working in queer theory and queer color critique. Um, Chandam Reddy, you know, like all of these people who have really made it clear that it's not enough just to point to the limitations or to render possibility as something that's always on the horizon, right? But rather to acknowledge and proliferate and amplify all of the different forms of being and knowing and desire um, that are possible, that have always been possible, despite and because and indifference to the systems that are trying to eradicate um, otherness, right? The systems that are trying to eradicate uh, radical difference in some way. And, and I think that that's that sensibility, right? And it was, it really, I'm using the term deliberately sensibility. Um, I think it's that sensibility that I, I think might be kind of amazing for us as a, as an organized thing to try to bring to bear through our various institutional locations. You know, what would we mean? What would it be if we're no longer arguing against a particular form, but for something else? And that for something else is the illiberal humanism, right? It's, not a perfect term. It's an imperfect term for something that I'm trying to get to, which is trying to, to fill out more positive terms rather than always staying on the negative side of critique, right? To get to something that we can actually move toward, you know, stand for rather than against. And, I, you know, I'm not sure that we are well trained to do that. And, and so um, I'm trying to follow the lead of other people, you know, uh, writers who I think, and artists who I think do do that work are always trying uh, rendering um, something into being that wasn't there before. I'm going to mount a very small defense of illiberal as a term, yeah. illiberal humanism, <laughs> sure. just because I liked it a lot, um, partially because, as you say in the book, you're trying to like think about human and, and man outside of the like typical genre of man, as Sylvia Winter yeah. puts it, um, and that the liberalness is the is one of the most important features of it. And so instead of necessarily going to humanism or hum, the human, it's about you know, liberal, it's about a particular kind of bourgeois um, imagining of the human. And so making that, you know, ill is is part of it. So that's the first small difference. The second <laughs> that I, it was when I first heard it, I was like, for some reason, I thought you might say this in the book, and I didn't uh, read it as closely as I could have. So you, maybe you do. But I was like, I immediately thought of hip hop and like, especially like early 90s, late 80s <laughs> hip hop, how like, you know, you could be the illest or it's time oh, to get yeah. ill. You know, um, and so rather than saying you're the best, being the illest at something uh-huh. um, is I like would, kind of. Yeah. I would love that. I mean, I really wish I had that as part of the genealogy. I really, I can't claim that though. Um, but it's really, you know, I'm glad, and I, I, I think I, I'm glad to hear that it's it's a useful term. I, I love the connection that you're making to early hip hop, but um, I think my my pause is that I don't. The 
the point was not to try to say, okay, and so now we must all form a liberal humanist studies, right? Like the idea was not to try to get to a new object of study or a new object of inquiry, but rather to re to shift our thinking in the ways that we think about um, ethnic literatures, right? Asian American literature. So that, you know, um, and this is one of the, one of the, um, uh, propositions in the book, which is to say, well, Asian American really take it as a modifier. How does it modify literature, right? And um, can that modification be thought of as a kind of humanism, an illiberal one, which is to say, it's difficult sometimes to get people to recognize liberalism as part of the problem of racism or part of the problem of colonial modernity, right? It's much easier to think that liberalism is a solution and much easier because everything in the U.S. political and cultural landscape points us toward that direction, right? Rule of law. If we just follow the rule of law, then everything will be fine. Um, people just have to behave in a more civilized way. Um, we have to stop hate. This is the new thing right now, right? I mean, the, the new idiom or the language that, that's been um, uh, emerging. And, and then everything will be fine. And those are all kind of liberal categories, you know, empathy of, um, of law, of civilizational discourses. And so to try to get people off of the liberal uh, platform is for me, in an English department, certainly, and within a university setting, is for me a harder project than it is to point to um, kind of more overt acts of racism that people don't see as acts of liberalism. Right. Um, but I think actually are in some ways. So, you know, that's where the ill was actually something that pulled at me because I often see illiberal attached to um, things like uprisings, right, or protests on the street. Like this is, these are illiberal and so therefore they're bad. And it's like, actually, I don't know that they're bad. Right. I think that there are eruptions of, you know, different forms of being that are coming into the world and they're um I don't want to celebrate them. I, I want to to be able to look at them for what they are, right? For the for the real ways in which they are experienced, and sometimes those experiences and sometimes those realities are not all um, desirable. But I do think that they are um, certainly a difference, a, a necessary difference from what we are given as the only and the inevitable options that are available to us, because those only and inevitable options have done so much damage, you know, continue to do so much damage. And we know that we, we have this knowledge and um, we need to do other things with it. Uh, you know, at the, there's some part of this too that for me, and this is the aesthetic part, I think is, um, this is about desire, right? This is about how we know what to desire and whom to desire and whom to fear and whom to hate. And um, those are for me fundamentally aesthetic questions. And their aesthetic is not, I don't mean to isolate that away from politics or away from anything else, but rather really to use it as a term that's talking about how um, our bodies are organized and oriented towards something and against other things, right? And that those are, those orientations and organizations happen through the institutionalized mechanisms that reward and punish, you know? Um, and I, uh, I think that in, until and unless we proliferate the, all the possibilities of the different desires that are out there, you know, just telling people that capitalism is bad, again, like that's one of those arguments, it just hasn't worked, right? I mean, not for everyone, sometimes it does, but, um, but there has to be other alternatives that are being put into, into play. And uh, for me, those alternatives, you know, there's so many of them and a kind of a rich proliferation of them that comes out through the literatures and um, the artwork of, of people who are 
minoritized within the prevailing systems. Let's get to that, um, to some of those other ways and sensibilities that, that you discuss in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of grows out of two things. I don't know if I'd call them critiques exactly. They're, you know, um, there are lessons, I suppose, that and reflections on what's happened since like Asian American studies has grown as a field, has become more institutionalized. Yeah. Um, and the, the first is that, uh, as you put it in the book, that this institutionalization could mean uh, that existing disciplines could remain at least a, at a radical level, relatively untouched by difference. And so how could we reimagine or see aesthetics as affecting that? And then the, the second reflection, I suppose, would be that through the cultural turn, the culture wars of the 80s, we've begun to um, erase aesthetics, or right, as you put it, to see them as apolitical. Yeah. Um, and so what is at stakes? What is at stake then in realizing the imbrication of aesthetics and politics? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, these are gigantic questions. <laughs> just, yes. Just <laughs> That's why I put them so, together. <laughs> yeah. I would say, I mean, I guess in terms of the institutionalization, you know, I'm really following... I'm following the lead of people like Rob Ferguson and Jody Malamed, um, who have written about how the formalization of fields like ethnic studies and like women's studies and gender and sexuality studies, um, they've enabled the, you know, this is one of the ways that, that universities have managed difference, right? Uh, to use Ferguson's term, um, they've enabled canonical dif- disciplines to remain unchanged. So, you know, if you do gender, then you have a whole department now. Why should English have to? to deal with it. You know, if you have an Asian American studies program, then why would you need to have somebody in history who does Asian American history? Um, and, you know, I, I am overstating this in some ways. I mean, there have been, I, I think that there have been huge differences that have been made in terms of the um, various locations, right, uh, that have been populated by uh, now Asian American historians and Asian American um, literary critics and so on. Um, but I don't know that the disciplines themselves have fundamentally changed. Right. Um, and I, you know, some of this is also kind of practically driven in the last, what, 10 years or so when we've seen um, departments and units cut wholesale, you know, um, and oftentimes they are the units that or they get consolidated. Right. So that you have all of the ethnic studies units now under one rubric because it's going to be a, an administrative efficiency. You know, that's sometimes the language I think. There is a way that the formalization and the institutionalization of particular programs and departments have made it very easy. You know, it's tidy for an administrator uh, for an administrator to kind of manage that difference in that way, right? Um, and what it, what remains untouched in kind of a literal way are the canonical disciplines, right? Those formations don't have to undergo the same kinds of um, uh, challenges or, or demands, right? And that's not to say that history and English and uh, art history and you know, music and all that, they haven't also been cut, but it's for different reasons or the rationalization around that, I think, has, has unfolded in a different way. Um, so some of this is about, you know, it's something that Rod Ferguson and I have talked about, and um, I don't know if he's written about it somewhere, but it's uh, uh, as a kind of a Trojan horse method, right? Like, there's no reason that you can't be in an English department and teach the Introduction to American Literature course and teach um, only writings by people of color, right? Um, there isn't any reason that you can't be in a biology department and teach epistemology that has to do with uh, racialization, right? So uh, we don't, we, I don't. I never want to argue against institutionalization because what that means is gathering resources and infrastructure. And resources and infrastructure are crucial 
to holding space open for people and for ideas that can't um, that don't have room otherwise, right? Um, and and I, I will never argue against that. But I don't think that that should be the end of our process, right? I think that that's one piece of what we do. And then I think we um, need to seed uh, ourselves and our ideas and our epistemological formations everywhere, right? So that it no longer becomes possible for institutions to you know, make the really to my mind, really ridiculous demographic arguments. Well, we have 16% Asian people on our on our campus, and therefore we should have a Asian American Studies program. Um, the demographic argument always reduces what is an epistemological and an intellectual field into something that's about identity, right? So I think if we continue to push against that, that that might it might help us kind of uh, produce a certain cushion against against the ways that in, that higher education, that management tries to, to manage difference, right? That administration tries to manage difference. Um, and that we can do that ourselves, right? We can actually play within the categories. You know, you're, you're assigned a composition course, teach it in the way that makes sense to you. And you don't, we don't have to buy into the segregations of aesthetics and politics. Um, we can actually do, do the thing that we do and uh, explain and kind of understand why um, and how that works uh, to try to kind of put, you know, puncture marks or um, shift the field in these kind of micro maneuvers a little bit, might fit the field of, kind of uh, the canonical disciplines. Um, and I do think that that is, that that is about the, there is something to me about not giving up, not conceding such categories like aesthetics that are so big and so weighty and so and carry a lot of what force or power or authority something i don't know something like that that i, I don't know why we would want to give up that terrain you know i think that i think all of that is um that is the stuff that we do you know and that it isn't a matter of trying to get institutional recognition for it so much as actually just making use of it to do the thing that we want to do, which is shift the common sense, shift the ways in which the idea of the Asian or the idea of the racial minority or the idea of um, uh, racism, right? And, and what that looks like and how it plays out um, is understood in a, in a kind of broad-based way. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that institutionalization is always a question. I never want to give up on institutions because, you know, they are places where there are resources and infrastructures, but I don't ever think that we want to attach to institutionalization as the point of what we do. It is a, um, uh, an important means, but it's not really the end or the horizon. And there have always been other ways that people have um, created space and made room and done the kind of intellectual heavy lifting that we're trying to do in Asian American studies, um, but in unrecognized forms. And uh, you know, that, I don't think that we ever should feel like if we lose the university as a site, then that's the end, right? You know, liberation movements, revolutionary thinking has happened everywhere on the streets always. So. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. 
They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I do want to lead to some silly questions now, yeah. <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because I, I just, I, I like asking these questions because uh, <laughs> authors respond in ways that they wouldn't in most interviews. And so okay. and I'm just uh-huh. curious, uh, but I, I want to ask about like your most favorite and least favorite mm-hmm. uh, moments on the book when you're reflecting on it. And most favorite could be like the parts that are kind of just silly and or make you feel warm. And like, <laughs> I hope the reader like gets that this is like a fun moment. Yeah. And then the least favorite could be <laughs> like the <laughs> the parts where you might feel like, oh, this is this was so hard to write. I don't want to be reminded of this or, yeah. you know, that you just have less happy feelings. About. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I so the you know the most favorite thing is really difficult because I think I don't have a relationship to writing in that way. Um, writing is really hard for me. I mean, writing anything is really hard, but especially this and uh, this not being this particular book, but but writing for for public consumption generally, I think is really difficult. And it's in part because it feels like I write so that I can understand something. And I hope that, and then I try to publish it so that I hope, because I hope that it will be useful and interesting to other people, but it is, uh, you know, you just throw it out there and then you don't really know what's going to happen to it on the other end, right? So all of it feels difficult and hard in some ways. Um, I will say what I was really, I was so glad to get to the end of the process of the project, making it into a book. Um, so that I could say thank you to people, you know, so that the acknowledgements could happen finally. Um, and that I think must be the favorite moment in the book. I mean, there's actually, you know, there are some other people that I should have included, or I would have liked to include, you know, things like that. So, so it's, it's tinged in a way, but, um, and it's not just because of the thanks, but because to my mind, one of the things that the book is trying to encourage um, and that I found my way to through writing it, I think, is the collective and is the collegial and um, how it is that any given object has so many people who are responsible for it, right? That it isn't an author who writes. It isn't a single single person who is working, um, but rather these you know, many, 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 many people um, who are responsible to and for the kind of work that is possible in any given moment. And um, I think that, that that's partly why I think I would say that the acknowledgments are really, they're, they're precious to me. The hardest, the hardest part or the most difficult, I think probably I would say it's actually that 
the chapter that has to do with the category of the universal. Um, I'm still grappling with it, and I, I don't think I really came to as clear an understanding of what I wanted to do with that that term and that word uh, and that concept um, in that chapter as I would have liked to before sending it off. But there was a moment when I felt like I can't I can't take this any further. I don't know what else to do with it, and I have exhausted my ability to be working inside of this particular iteration of. You know, thought. So I kind of, I just wanted to send it out into the world in that way. Um, so it is just, it's, a, you know, I'm just admitting to acknowledging the flaws, I suppose. But, uh, you know, still, there's still that hope, right, that other people can can do something with it and something more than, than what you want. I, I framed it in terms of propositions in part because I really wanted it to be like a conversation, you know, like, what do you think? What do you think if we think about this in this way? What do you think? And that's all I ever want, really. It's just a good conversation. And I hope that the, the, the ideas in the book will be useful for other people in that way. I remember a wise person once told me that everything you write is could be kind of a transition to the next thing you write or to what other people are going to write following. And yeah. I feel like this book is especially generative in that way. There's so much um, in it that, you know, what I want to do with your term illist or sorry, the illiberal <laughs> to think about illist is could be part of that conversation going forward. Um even though it's not at all what you or might mean when you use yeah. it. But there's so much uh, going on like that, that I feel like, um, yeah, I could really build on other people's, uh, that other people could build off of. That's so great. You know, I mean, that's a, like, that's the fun part, right? You put something out and somebody else takes it and runs with it in a different direction. And it's just, I, I don't know, like that's, that is how we create the worlds, right? That is how we bring to bear the worlds that we inhabit, you know, bring to bear those kinds of connections and the and the sorts of filaments that um, we're not always aware of, but that just, I don't know, it's really exciting and, and kind of the best part of what we do, right, is actually to be a part of that and to, to have any any sense of belonging in that sort of conversation. You know, that's everything. That's such a gift mm -hmm. to, to have that. So I'm really grateful to you for the time that you're taking with this. And of course. Yeah. No, it's it's my pleasure always. Um, yeah. And when I publish the article, The Illist Illiberal in the Room, I'm going <laughs> to credit this conversation. <laughs> so Kenneth Chu definitely agrees with this term. Awesome. You know, I thought, I thought that you were going to say the illicit, you know, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, illicit humanism, right? Like there's some play, there's some fun play to, to be done with this. Um, well, it's yeah. exactly that merging that you discuss in the intro. It's like, I can't exactly remember where these ideas came from. Like, they yeah. came out of conversations a lot of the yeah. time. That's right, um, right. And yeah. isn't that, I mean, you know, it's like, and oftentimes it's like the things that you were chatting about in the hallway after a conference session, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, over a drink and somebody just says the exact turn of phrase that, that is really great and it, and it kind of, you know, talks you into something else. I mean, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that's in this book, but really everything that I teach or write about or talk about, um, it's the stuff that I can't shake off, right? It's it's like somebody said something or read something and I can't really quite make sense of it and it haunts me. And, and so they Objects are always selecting me, and this is this is you know one of the things that I, I talk about with my students. And, um, the the things that you can't shake off are the things that are actually trying. Your body is trying to tell you, like, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, right? And then once you start doing that, something else happens, and and uh, and if you're lucky, that's your job, right? Is to actually um, not just do that for yourself, but actually to allow other people's work. And 
Um, that's the pure gift of what we get to do, I think. Uh, despite all of the, the kinds of crazinesses that happen inside of universities and institutions, um, we do have these sorts of networks and these sorts of, uh, I don't know, infrastructures. I think it's infrastructure building, right, uh, that's necessary to create the worlds and to inhabit the worlds that we know are possible. You know, it's like we don't even have to imagine them. We know that they're possible. And AAAS is, one of, is a part of that, I think. I don't know. I like to think about mm. it anyway. It helps. This has been such an inspirational um, <laughs> conversation, um, but I, I feel like I have to end it. I don't want to take too much of your time, yeah, yeah. but I want to um, end by asking you about your um, current projects. And you mentioned, uh, too, The Disinterested Teacher, yeah. uh, a collection of essays on pedagogies and praxis, and another, The uh, When, Where, How, Asia, which yeah. is on Asian racialization, which is kind of how you end this book, too, talking about Asian racialization. Um, but can you talk about both or either of those? Sure, yeah. And I'm trying to be brief about that. I mean, The Disinterested Teacher came in part because it occurred to me in finishing Difference Aesthetics Makes that it's actually a book that's about pedagogy. And I, I, I should have recognized that earlier on, but I, I just didn't. Um, and that actually, the, the turn toward the construct of pedagogy came through my work through the American Studies Association um, and working with Laura Kang and Alex Vasquez and Siobhan Somerville um, in building that program, but also then with um, Rod Ferguson, who stepped in as president right after me. And um, we were really talking about pedagogy in a kind of robust way, right? Not only what we do in a classroom and not only about theories of teaching and learning, but rather how um, urban spaces are designed or how our houses are designed or, you know, things like access and infrastructure, you know, all those sorts of things um, that, that orient us in particular ways. That for me is all pedagogy, right? Even even access to good food or, or to, to clean water, right? All of that is part of our pedagogical structures. So I, I wanted to think about how pedagogy and aesthetics were connected together and, um, and also to really try to um, give some, you know, kind of writerly room to that thing that I am, I spend most of my professional life doing, which is thinking and thinking about teaching and teaching and being in a classroom and devising syllabi, you know, all those sorts of things, because I don't really spend as much time doing this kind of writing, right? The kind of writing that leads to a book. And it's not, I'm not bemoaning it. That's just kind of how my um, the way in which I relate to our profession, that's how it has unfolded. And this, this uh, it's a preference as much as it is a kind of structural um, construct. So that's probably why I've decided that, you know, it's a collection of essays. It's not research in the quite the same mode. Um, <clears throat> some of it is just picking up on things that I had already written in the past and other pieces are or newer, um, just kind of thinking through um, it with the hope that that it will help, uh, you know, it, again, like be be part of um, how we help each other do our work, right? Um, so I'm trying to find a way of publishing it or making it available that it doesn't necessarily have to be as costly as a, an academic press book and, you know, those sorts of things. So I, I have some of that to figure out as well. Um, but I will say, you know, I... I as I was finishing the difference aesthetics makes, I, I had um, some serious health issues come up. And on the other end of that, when I emerged, because I had been thinking about uh, contemporary Asian racialization for quite a while, um, I just could not bring myself to think like, oh, if this is the thing that I want to, you know, now that I'm I'm healthy again, like, do I really want to spend my time thinking about Asia? I was like, actually, I think I want to think about teaching. And so that was partly why this, this project took priority. It was intended to be done a year ago, and then COVID happened. And um, 
the combination of COVID and sharing um, English during that time just meant that it's been pushed off and that's fine. It's not, there's nothing that feels so, you know, kind of urgently pressing about it. The other project is something I, I just, you know, I think all of us, yourself included, and certainly actually, you know, this kind of goes back also to, to Vancouver again, um, thinking about how Asia um, does and doesn't work as a category, as a racial category. Right. Um, and particularly as we've pivoted into the 21st century and people are talking about the Asian Pacific century or the Pacific century or the Asian century and um, what that means and how we are to understand those terms and how we are to understand Asianness within that construct, um, just if, like for uh, as for other people, has been really interesting to me. Um, and and as it has coincided with. Um, so much necessary attention to anti-blackness, so much necessary attention to um, settler colonialism and so on, right? So how do these formations work um, in relation and in sync with each other? Um, there was also a moment when I wanted to think about the histories of, uh, not a moment, but about, you know, one of the, the, the threads um, linking to that project is trying to think through the histories of the critique of Orientalism that on the one hand has given rise to um, much of the work that we do through Asian American studies, right? Um, this kind of a sense of how Asian Americanist, uh, Asian American studies um, answers and tries to interrupt Orientalism. But there's also the figure of the Arab and the Arab American, right? Um, and that is also uh, produced through and as a resistance to, or kind of in response to Orientalism, but Asianness and Arabness aren't always or, or often talked about in the same critical space. So not, uh, you know, I think in the real, actually, there's a lot of politics and a lot of kind of social movements that are that are um, in solidarity or, or in community with each other. But as critical terms, we don't necessarily think about them together. And I wanted to think a little about that and what that might mean to um, new institutional formations um, to bring that to bear, um, to bring to bear a space where Arabness and Asianness are actually always thought um, in, in sync with each other. Um, and so that, you know, it's, the, it's that kind of jumble of questions. And still for me, right, it's the kind of meta questions, you know, how, how are we doing this? When, when is Asia? Um, and what are we doing? And, um, and that's in concert with some of the students I've had the great, um, great good fortune of working with. At the, at the grad center. Well, Candace, this was such an awesome conversation. Um, I, I might have to make this into its own podcast, actually, <laughs> because it's been so uh, so inspirational and so useful, I think. Uh, thanks, um, Chris. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. So Thank you. And it's really nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the JAST podcast, a collaboration between the Journal of Asian American Studies and the New Books Network. It is produced by the Journal of Asian American Studies with the help of the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. It is mixed by myself, and the music featured in it is by the local Vancouver band Necking.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.